Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to What Load of Cobblers, Friday Night Lights, the podcast equivalent of a Mickey Bell shimmy in front of a cricket side. I'm Tom Reed. Joining me tonight, ahead of the Plymouth Argyle match on Saturday, are three happy little pilgrims. It's Andy Bodfish, Martin Maloney and Jefferson Lake. How are you doing, guys? You all right? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, all right, mate. Yeah. All good. Yeah, everyone's still struggling with all this COVID-19 business. It's just dragging everyone down. But I guess uh, Cobblers gives us something to look forward to or not. <laughs> Andy, how are you doing, buddy? Are you doing a bit of your um, commentary work this week? Yes, uh, pretending to be in Japan yesterday morning, which was lovely. Um, good bit of J-League action. Cracking game, actually. And then, um, yeah, I was on a little bit of basketball uh, yesterday evening as well. Things are opening up now. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, various voices are needed to sort of commentate the Europa League equivalent of basketball, which is nice. How's your basketball knowledge? Are you just are you just sort of like trying to fill a few gaps in and blagging a little? Oh bit? mate, it's, like it's off the peg. It's off the peg. Um, no, <laughs> I mean you know there's uh, you know there's enough of it. Um, there's enough yeah. of it on YouTube, and you know you sort of surround yourself in that world for a bit. And um, yeah, I mean I, I've, I've been doing a I've, I've been doing a bit over the last couple of years. So, what's your football moment of the week, Andy? Uh, well, I know that you're going to elaborate on it. Um, yourself you know uh, existential crisis we don't know where we're going the future yeah. of the game um you know the, the the world of football is collapsing around us my football moment of the week england wearing all blue at wembley <laughs> against yeah. denmark i'm sorry but what is that about <laughs> are you not a fan of this kit i take andy because you're a kit kind of well, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the kit i mean the patterning and texturing of the kit is wonderful um but other than that, why are you messing around with a badge for a start? Why yeah. are you camouflaging the star? It's all very coy, isn't it? Oh, we won a World Cup and we're embarrassed about it. Um, plus, it's just a polo shirt, mate. Yeah, I've heard people say that. <laughs> I think you're right. It's, it's all too double denim for me. So we'll put we'll put England's away kit into Ring 101. Uh, Martin, how you doing, buddy? What's your football moment of the week? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I, I had a little think about this and... Um... I think it was Marcus Rashford. God, I'm not a, fa- not a fan of the honours system. You know, I quite like when people turn them down. But Marcus Rashford, I think he played a blinder. Yeah. Clearly yeah, shamed yeah. the government not only into a little bit of action on poverty, but not a lot, but took his MBE and with his speech, none of your nonsense. He just, he just said, right, now you need to carry on doing something because... <laughs> People 
have not got enough money, kids have not got enough food to eat, and stop, you know, apportioning blame and start helping out. And I'll yeah. see a few hours earlier, of course, the um, current government of the day have um, turned him down because universal credit is so wonderful. But I just think Marcus Rashford is a stunning example of what you can do with that position. And I think, you know, every every young sports person, every young person should look up and think, right, you can make a difference. Well said, Martin. I think that's really... Here, mm. here. Brilliant. And, yeah. and he just seems to look into causes which aren't, I wouldn't say hugely complicated. Obviously, poverty is complicated to an extent, but he just goes for for, for causes and he, he speaks well and, and he helps out with causes that people can't really argue against. Child poverty. People do, obviously, on Twitter. And you see stuff, people give him digs and just because he's putting his head above the parapet and trying to help. But in terms of a role model, I don't think you get much better than Marcus Rashford. So that's a, that's a really good one, Martin. And well said. Jefferson? How you doing, mm. mate? What's your football moment of the week and uh, live from Sky Sports? <laughs> I'm all right, thanks I'll for asking. I'm all I am always with Sky Sports in one way or another, spiritually. Um, <laughs> I thought excellent point about Marcus Rashford. Marcus Rashford might actually be the only active current Manchester United player I've ever liked. Uh, yeah. I quite like uh, George Best. And I like, I really like Duncan Edwards, but as in a current player, playing for Manchester United, Rashford may be the only one I've ever liked. And uh, as well as, I can't really add anything more to what Martin said because it was spot on, but it also, I don't think you can really underestimate that role model thing. And we've talked before on this podcast about the tokenism and things like that. This is someone um, from the sort of BAME community who is making a difference and who Mm. other people from that community can look to for inspiration as, as a, a massively positive role model. And yeah, that is a great choice. Mine is of a similarly significant level. It's been a thin gruel this week on the football front, what with the Cobblers predictably losing to Peterborough at home. I have managed to, however, successfully install and run Championship Manager 97-98 on my laptop. Ooh, dangerous. <laughs> so, dangerous game. So hours and hours await me, although it, this is quite a bittersweet uh, football moment of the week because while I did manage to finally get it running after many, many attempts, uh, I decided to take the job at Cambridge United. Oh. Cobblers, you know, start the bomb, work the way up. Um, not the greatest uh, sort of two thirds of the season and they actually sacked me. So, uh, yeah, not, not going great at the moment. Currently looking, looking for work. I've got, I've, got two, I've got two points to that. One is, please explain to me how you do it, because I've tried myself and it just fails every time to load it on. Yeah. Uh, the second, obviously, maybe off, off, off air, because it would be a very boring chat about MS-DOS and stuff like that. But uh, the second point is, how have you failed with Tom Young's up front? Well, exactly. That's what I thought. They've got Tom Youngs and they've got um, Trevor Benjamin as well. So I thought, great couple of strikers there. Build the team around them. <laughs> but neither of them were great. Um, the easiest way to install it, you need to get something called DOSBox. You may already have that. And then just go, this, is, this was the key to it. Go to YouTube and type in how to play CM9798 on. <laughs> and, and there'll be like a two minute tutorial that will guide you through it as though you are a five year old child, which is exactly <laughs> I needed. Yeah, it's probably about my mental age. And the problem is, though, do you know one of those things that you like, 
you get you you get it and you think if I get if I get this, it's gonna just take up so many hours of my day and I'll become addicted <laughs> to it because I was addicted to it when it came out. Oh, and great. yeah, and yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it's been it's been proven to have caused divorces and stuff like that, doesn't it? So it's a bit of a, yeah. a, a dangerous path to go down. But if yeah, you want to get divorced, just play chat man. All the time. I, I don't know that it's got the same magic. Maybe it's just because the team I was managing was shite. But I don't know. That's the same. You know, I'm not. I'm certainly not playing it until two or three o'clock in the morning. Let's put it like that. You have to cheat though, Jeff, because no one what? ever played that. I, I, no, everyone needs to tell the truth. No one ever played that game without cheating. So the easiest way to do it is add add a manager, for instance, yeah. Man United. Yeah. Buy a lot of your dross players for quite a lot of money and give you a kitty of about ten million. Um, then you go to the amazing minor leagues, which is just amazing. The minor leagues, yeah, the players, players. yeah, uh, called um, Darcy and Claudi- Claudio. Right <laughs> them in there, Roger Bolly up front with, and away you go. Carl Viertz, Carl Viertz is always a play- favourite of mine. And uh, there's a guy called Lee Hughes who I've had talked to the championship manager guys on the internet. He, he's not the Lee Hughes, but he was a left back and he was free. I think it was a free transfer, and he's brilliant. So I have a look at him, but. Yeah, your life is going to be going downhill fast. Cause you're yeah, yeah. You, I won't be on the podcast ever again, so I'll just be playing that. Let's move from, you know, quite a positive story of Jefferson Tony's <laughs> manager too. We've got to talk about it quickly, the, the Peterborough United game. Um, Martin, you're usually pretty good with your appraisal of a match. How do you see that game? It was disappointing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was um, I thought... And we're up against, you know, I, I think posture are good. The much as they've started slowly, they're a, they're a very good side. I think we, the past two home games have been against good sides, but we have looked very, you know, not not too much tooth up, teeth up front and very, more worryingly, I think for me, very shaky at the back. It's starting to become a pattern, which is really concerning. Um, you know, I'm not one of those who's, you know, obviously there's been some, Words flown around on social media. Now I'm very much. Let's calm down and you know not talk about big big change of manager. I think it's a big a big challenge ahead. I mean, there's clearly there's a bit of budget in the kitty and the transfer deadline close tomorrow. I'll be really surprised if there's not another centre half in. Um, I, I kind of feel we've got enough midfielders that you can rejig that. Um, there's there's quality there that should work. The wide players, I think Nicky Adams coming back will will make a difference. Um, I think up front there's quality. It all, you know, it's maybe just getting the comp- right combination, and you know, some fairly young players there. But the bit where we should have been really solid and hard to beat, we feel a little bit soft centred, and that that's a concern. Mm. Yeah, that seems that seems reasonable. Go on, Jeff. I was going to say this might be a controversial one, but I was thinking, you know, sometimes you you, you hear this expression that that team is in a false position. Do you think last season we had a false promotion? Oh yeah, that's that's a good question, and it's a big question, isn't it? And probably one for another time. We've had a few more games played, but you know they were seventh. What we went, we got promoted from seventh. Is that that yeah, exactly, yeah. And having on on quite a bad run of form, you know, was quite fortuitous, perhaps, how we got into the playoffs. Take nothing away, brilliant in the playoffs, the, the the second semi-final and the final. But I just wonder, is it all a bit not not like I don't know if it's even too soon or if it's just. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Andy. Andy, what do you think? 
yeah, I, I agree with that, basically. I think I've sort of alluded to it before, the um, the run the Cobblers were on just before the uh, the pandemic hit. And then... Um, some sort of some sort of weird alchemy um, happened on the resumption. Um, indeed, that's that you know that second leg playoff final recovery, and then with the um, with the subsequent dismantling of the team that that were excellent over the course of that uh, second leg and the final. Um, I mean, again, you know, sort of it's speech bubble, thought bubble, isn't it? Ahead of the season, you're kind of like, well, you know, you'll put your faith in Keith Curl. He knows a player. He did it last season. Whatever was required, he 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 ticked that box, um, you know, when it came to the shakeup. But yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, our level is, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just not there, is it? I mean, the worrying thing for me over the last three matches, just we just don't look like scoring. Yeah. When I started watching, and some of us would have done in the 80s, it was like, why do people you know, get so worried about Posh? Because we seem to be- beat them all the time for about three years. And I reckon right. I've been paying for that complacency ever since. <laughs> yeah, we'll have our day again. It goes around in cycles. We'll have a day again, but it just wasn't our day last weekend. Right then, we're going to move on to the hot topic of the day. That's the future of the whole sport. Just a small topic to go on to. And a bailout for lower league clubs. I'm delighted to be joined by Martin Calladine, author and writer for The Ugly Game, blog on, on Twitter, on the internet. And Jay Cave, campaign originator of Against League Three, which is a big role in the B-team boycott. How are you doing, guys? You all right? Very good, thanks. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. It's great to have you on. You know, we're, we talked a lot on Twitter and on the internet and stuff with regards to these themes and it's just blown up this week quite spectacularly one hour changes to the next and there's a new story coming out and most of them have been not particularly great there's been a few bright things in the middle of it all but we'll we'll get to those later on let's start with b teams and i'll go to i'll go to you first martin actually um you've been quite vocal vocally critical of of b teams they it just seems the to be an idea that just never dies the flogging a dead horse they were you know mentioned in dispatches this weekend especially mentioned in one of the leaked documents that um, the FA chairman Greg Clark was supposed to have a hand in literally saying that B teams uh, are proposed to go into the EFL structure now Martin what's your what's your take on on that to start with about what's happened this week with regard to B teams and what's your take latterly on you know the value of B teams as a whole well, I think it's interesting that the B teams is, is like this zombie idea that no matter how many times it's killed off, no matter how many times it's rejected, it keeps coming back. And usually for whatever reason is most convenient. You know, originally, it was floated as a, a thought that it could help produce more youngsters for the England team. Um, then there's talk about it being necessary to help teams compete in Europe. Obviously, not all teams, just certain teams. And now this week, suddenly it's magically appeared again with sustainability as the reason Anyway, I don't think it takes much more than five seconds thinking to think that if the solution to all our problems is to allow Premier League clubs to buy themselves a second team in the EFL, then that really isn't any kind of meaningful um, sustainability. We know that attendances are desperately poor at the existing EFL trophy games where B teams are available and attendances are poor across Europe where B teams exist. So I think the, 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 the bigger question really is is why do they want these things so much and and what next is going to be their excuse 
because there's no there's nothing in it at all that I've seen um, for lower league teams. Quite the contrary, it, it devalues the competition um, and creates kind of two tier football. But it just won't go away. Sure, I think that's 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 a good summary. It just seems to be an idea that won't ever go away unless there's significant opposition to it, which you know takes me on to Jay and his against league three campaign, which has been pretty pretty successful in um, bringing down attendances for the EFL Trophy where B teams are, are played in. Um, Jay, what do you think of this week's news in terms of uh, the B team content and? Where do you think things will go from here? I think generally the the past couple of days with these various different self-centered proposals that we've seen have been some of the most in, in, incredible plans that we've we've seen in football gov- in governance since since 1992. Um, in terms of B teams, uh, the, that that level of pressure is only going to increase. Um, it's such a it's such a commercial and financial incentive for the clubs to be able to increase the squad sizes that they can accommodate and play. Um, this, this is own, the demand for this is only going to get greater coming from the elite level Premier League clubs. But I think what's really disappointing is how accommodating supposedly the head of the FA and the head of the EFL have been in this demand. You know, at no point have you seen waves and waves of supporters crying out for, for B teams, certainly not from the lower divisions and even higher up, you know, I think most Premier League fans in, in fairness are, are are pretty against. I, I think that's mainly what I've taken away is that I've always sort of hoped that despite the pressure from the Premier League, that there would be people in the FA and there would be people in the Football League who would fight against these proposals. So to see that the the two heads of those particular organisations seemingly be involved in discussions that would would see them accommodated is is really disappointing. If you're in a, a conversation with a football fan, but be, no one really ever will say, you know, why don't we? Why don't uh, B teams brought in to improve things? Like you say, the Premier League fans aren't particularly in favour of it either. It just seems like an idea. You've got to work out where the uh, where the ideas actually emerging from in the first place and these documents like project big picture i'm not sure where actual actual version it was but the one that um, greg clark was supposed to have a hand in was pretty disturbing actually i think i i called it like the worst document since the fa blueprint in 91 which spawned the premier league which the fa completely lost control of straight straight away but i remember that that document went on about the middle middle classification of the game and going after the middle class uh, people in their uh, pursuits and aspirations and uh, language of that nature and this uh, document talked about commercialization of the game and b teams and it was just you know it wasn't it wasn't a good read at all but i guess that takes us on to project big picture itself version whatever <laughs> the latest version is out now um or was out before it was it was defeated um i thought the best critique i read of project big picture before it was defeated by the Premier League or defeated for a time, you know, the battle has been won, but maybe the war. Um, the best critique for me came from the Football Supporters Association, actually, who I've been fairly critical of in the past. I don't think they have enough mix of direct action and, um, you know, just basic lobbying. I, I've always thought they, you know, they should learn uh, a bit from the Germans on that level. But, but to be in, the, in fairness to them, they 
they came out with a really good critique of the project big picture which called it a sugar-coated cyanide pill i just read out a little bit of the statement uh, they 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 released which you know basically said that their biggest one of the biggest problems was with the change to the rule system for the premier league um and they said that basically um the name clubs would control the distribution rights of sponsorship, commercial and broadcasting rights sold and would be allowed to alter in a material way the nature of the competition, which opens the door to Game 39 or even Madder schemes. A six club can set the rules. Who can start their ending, them ending relegation from the Premier League and creating a franchise system like they have in US sports? No one. Who can stop them rewriting the rules in a few years so that top six keep all the medium money? Uh, no one. Who could stop them cutting funding entirely to the EFL or grassroots football? No one. Supporters cannot lead, let the greed of a few billionaire, billionaire owners destroy our league system, which I thought was a, quite a strong rebuttal and uh, quite a clear um, critique of Project Big, Big Picture. Martin, what was your take on the Project Big Picture before it was um, it was defeated? And what do you think the biggest problems were? Do you agree with the FSA on that one? I do. I agree with them completely. I mean, to me, it was nothing less than a massive attempted act of blackmail, and especially disturbing is that it seems that you know, so they seem to have so many inside men working against what I perceive the interests of their own members to help them. But I think you know, there's been a lot of discussion about some of the good things in there, and to me, that slightly misses the point because anything that's being offered there was being offered in exchange for something of far greater value to the big six. And so the yeah. idea that we would be able to pick and choose those and just dump the really bad bit later seemed a failure to me. I, I think the thing from my perspective is to take a step back and to say that it, to me, it seems like a really major inflection point in the history of English football. I think it can be hard to spot, you know, pivotal moments when they're happening. But I really think that this genuinely might be the kind of thing that in 20 years time, we look back on Project Big Picture, either as the beginning of the end of lower league football, the pyramid as we know it, or potentially the beginning of a rebirth of it. Um, and I do genuinely think that there was that much at stake because there was a few people that said, well, you know, they're already very powerful, the big six. But I don't think it really takes a lot of hard thinking to recognise there's a difference between the kind of the informal power that they had, large as it was, and creating a new absolute constitutional authority for them to exercise in a way that was clearly drafted with a view to giving them a complete carte blanche if we're looking at what the rebirth might be, you know, we have now an unavoidable fact, I think. There's a finally pretty much everyone gets it that the English football is basically ungovernable. Self-regulations completely fail without government intervention. I don't think we've got any hope of rebalancing the game or rebuilding the FA and the EFL. But you know, we survived. We dodged a bullet last week. We have to do something urgently about it so that a, a better future can begin now while we're all kind of angry about it and while we all recognise that we've reached a really serious moment, a moment of great crisis. One of the things that troubled me was that it just seemed that EFL chairman and owners, you know, fairly unanimously were in favour of Project Big Picture. Um, and as they might well be given that Project Big Picture, the bailout dwarfed that of the 50 million bailout offered by Premier League HQ, uh, which was actually rejected yesterday, funnily enough. I've heard a, a couple of sort of people talk, and they they've sort of said that they've sort of said that you know fears over changing to the voting regulations pie in the sky, and that a lot of the FSA um, fears what probably would never happen, and uh, the the big six would just keep things in check, and it's not thin under the wedge that sort of line. But 
you know, how can we trust anything anymore when B teams were said to be not the thin end of the wedge consistently by various people, but they were there clear as day in project, big picture version, whatever that Greg Clark, the FA chair was said to have contributed to. And it, if you'd asked football league, league owners 30 years ago, whether they'd have voted for EPPP to give the richest clubs access to their best youth talent for a capped fee, they'd have laughed at you, but that's exactly what happened. So sometimes power can be leveraged in unexpected ways. And to give, as Martin said, carte blanche to the richest um, uh, factions already, it just seems a, a scary a scary prospect and quite a dangerous one. Um, Jay, you were a bit scathing of the EFL owners for being so unanimous in their support. There are a few, a few notably um, Andy Holt have uh, talked about their objections, but what do you make of the EFL owners' position on Project Big Picture and what do you make of that project in its totality? Don't get me wrong, it, the, the EFL club owners are in a genuinely tough position. And I, and for all my, you know, derisory comments, I, I understand that fully. You know, clubs are going to go bust at the end of November if, if, if something doesn't happen soon. Um, and that's a really... That's a really tough position to be in. I, I, I fully understand that. But to to go back to what Martin said, despite some of the very attractive-looking financial measures of Project Big Picture, they are... It's really short-term thinking, you know, and this, this may get you immediately out of the woods, but at the, sacrifi- at the sacrifice of potentially... You know, the next 20, 30 years, you are entrusting the future of your club to the, the the whim of the big six or the big nine or however you want to look at it, or however it was it was termed. And one of the things that I, I said very early on when crowds were um, crowds were prevented from going into the grounds was that I wanted to see stronger leadership from the FA. I wanted to see the FA bring everyone around the table, the Premier League, the Football League, you know, the amateur game, the women's game, um, you know, grassroots youth, and figure out a way forward that was best, that was in the best interests of all parties. And it's really disappointing that the total opposite has happened. While Greg Clark can say that, yes, he was involved in these discussions up to a point, but he didn't like how they went and, and, and withdrew himself. Well, that, that just isn't good enough. You know, what what should have happened is that is that Greg Clark's or the FA's involvement in any discussions on the future of the game should have been transparent from very early on. Yeah, I tend to agree with much of that. I think when you look at the output from the Football Association, it seems to be binded and tied by its its own governance and its own systems. And that's something that when we move on to Gary Neville and Bernstein's plan, uh, that that's something that that, tr- that tries to deal with. When we look at uh, the ideas that have been mooted today, I was I, I actually put on Twitter that none of these ideas are actually particularly new. So Bernstein's idea, I think he's been talking about them for quite a few ideas. I think he actually talked at one of the uh, Football Supporters Federation conferences one time along, along similar themes. So these aren't particularly new ideas. And that shows the fault of football and the fact that it hasn't been able to govern itself because a lot of these ideas were actually very good. Uh, the idea for a, a regulator was mooted in 1999, I think it was, with the Football Task Force, where Andy Burnham, another signatory on Gary Neville's ideas, was a big part of. 
and they were basically saying that the football needed a regulator and it was just rejected by the Premier League, Football Association, football Association and, and Football League. So time after time, football has failed to institute, institute fairly simple ideas that would probably save us from a lot of the problems we're at today. Like going back to the 1991 blueprint, which was quite ruinous in certain aspects, uh, actually unleashed the Premier League, which the FA lost control of. But one of the um, sub-clauses of that was that football supporters had to be um, consulted on material changes to the game, significant changes to the game. And that never was never put into place. The football task force uh, ideas for a regulator and um, statutory board representation for supporters was never instituted. And in all these decades, so many football clubs, and there's been so much damage wrought on communities because of it. And it's sort of like, it's not laughable. It's, you know, if you don't laugh, you cry. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible disgrace that a lot of these ideas are, are being rehashed now and almost as if they're new when the chance after chance has been missed to institute them. But, you know, when we look at project big picture and the, the real issues with the, the voting changes that were just abominable and just you know impassable in my opinion i i still think that that project big picture will re re-emerge at some point and that is the issue and if we move on to the uh saving our beautiful game manifesto from gary neville and david bernstein it will go through some of the points in a second but i just made it at the beginning that it's, it's some really good ideas. Some of them are new, some of them aren't. Um, but it's still that plan, we'll discuss it, doesn't really uh, remove the need for a bailout. It doesn't really affect uh, things financially. So the problem is, will parts of Project Big Picture reemerge with or alongside Gary Neville Bernstein's plan if they uh, you know, ever see the light of day? So let's just bear that in mind before we discuss the Gary Neville proposals. But uh, I'll just quickly go through the, the listeners the uh, basic features of Gary Neville's proposals um, and Bernstein and various other people. So you need to uh, have a look at who else signed it. Um, they want an independent regulator or commissioner for football, which I don't think I've heard much opposition to, maybe apart from certain club owners, maybe, but that just seems to be a, an idea whose time has come, a, an independent regulator. Andy Holt of Accrington Stanley has been crying out for one for a long time. Um, and so this regulator would have uh, would be independent of the current structure of the game. That's point one of their plan. Number two, decide on new ways of distributing funds to the wider game based on a funding formula and a fair levy payable by the uh, English Premier League. Three, set up a new and comprehensive system for the professional game. Four, review courses of financial stress in the FL, including parachute payments, solidarity payments, salary caps, and mandatory relegation players in causes uh, clauses in players' contracts. So that's trying to deal with the uh, distribution of money in football. Five, implement government governance reforms at the FA, which are essential to ensure it is truly independent, diverse and representative English football today. A fundamental reform of the FA Council would be an impressive start of this process. Six, liaise with supporters organisations to progress issues that are of concern to fans and provide a greater voice for supporters. And seven, study lessons from abroad and seek to champion support or involvement in the running of clubs. So just to quickly, um, before I pass to you, Martin, the, the talk about um, learning uh, from support and involvement in the running of clubs have actually specifically mentioned 50 plus one as a reasonable model to look at. And obviously the German licensing system, that's quite an important one. Um, Martin, what do you make, make to these Bernstein and Neville plans? 
for the first look? Well, I think the, the, the first thing that struck me actually about the document, which refers back something to Tom, you mentioned about the danger of some of big picture re-emerging, is that actually the document itself, while it's filled with good and what I take to be rather uncontroversial ideas, is actually quite badly written. It feels very rushed. It feels like it needed another edit. And I wonder if this has emerged, you know, a project that was approaching completion that has been rushed through to try and get in before it's too late. And, and I think the the, you know, the risk I see is that um, obviously we need, in my view, to decouple a bailout from any fundamental reform. The, the risk is that before this stuff, whether it be driven by Bernstein or, or like the FSA sustain the game, is that they can stitch something up, the EFL and, and, and the PL, and, and, and get some of that over the line before this long promised government fan-led review takes place. But as the actual components of it, yeah, no, I, I have I have no issue with any of it. Um, my concern is slightly back from that, and maybe that's something I want to come on to later, but how do we actually make this happen? The one thing I would think is very good and struck me as slightly different in tone from documents produced by the FA in recent years is, is very good on the harmful effect of um, Premier League wealth and how that inevitably leads through to kind of misrule and the the use of that kind of informal economic power. So it's not neutral on that. You know, previous documents from the FA we've seen talked about the need to you know, to improve matters in the English game without doing anything to undermine the Premier League. This is quite clear that Premier League financial muscle, or the disparity between that and the rest of the game, is a problem that must be addressed and is a, a, one of the actual major roots of the kind of the inability of football to govern itself. So I, I really do welcome that. Jay, what's your what's your take on um, saving our beautiful game, the manifesto? The, the the ideas that it actually contains, as Martin says, I think are generally uncontroversial ideas. I think they're ideas that plenty of campaigners have called for for a number of years, and and in that in that respect, I'm broadly supportive. I think one of the main problems with the document is the timing, in that it does absolutely nothing to address the crisis they referred to before, which is clubs are about to imminently go bust. In the introduction to the question, you cited opposition from clubs. I think actually the main opposition has come from the FA itself, where sure. the FA has insisted to the government that they're more than capable of self-regulation, and that that just isn't the case to to anyone who can who can open a pair of eyes. Um, you know, they the the has maintained that they themselves are more than capable of looking after themselves, and the FA doesn't have to get involved. And actually, that that's pretty much the line that the FA has taken. They're much more active in matters concerning the amateur game and grassroots, um, women's football and youth football, than the professional game is actually essentially left alone. I think that's one of the main problems because, again, as many people, both yourselves, have, have, have said, the professional game just isn't capable of self-regulating at all. Um, and there's a, there's a debate, I certainly, I think the FSA's line um is that they would they would want to see the FA have increased powers. Um, and while the document is right that, that leading up to that may be the way forward, um, I, I think we need an independent regulator as soon as possible. It's really hard to keep up because this is this is changing by the hour. You know, and I think we're we're recording in the afternoon. I think the podcast comes out this evening. There's no guarantee that the situation is still going to be the same. <laughs> come, come the release of the podcast, you know. Um, and it, it's it, it's it's so 
so sort of strange. It's so so strange times for everyone, but I think it, the the professional game is in real real trouble. And I think unless something happens incredibly soon, um, you are going to see clubs go to the wall. So I, I guess that leads us to talk about what comes next. Obviously, we know we know records here, but crystal ball. But we can probably try and map out something in our own minds or our own opinions about how how it will go. Ideally, I guess what you'd have is ideally what you'd have is um, an amalgamation of a, a Premier League bailout with not too many uh, strings attached, which as itself is probably sounds ridiculous. But and uh, and joined up in space for Gary Neville and Bernstein's plans. That would be the ideal thing. But the problem is, is that when you look at some of the final detail of uh, Neville and Bernstein plans, stuff like uh, 50 plus one, that ownership, the licensing system, are Premier League club owners going to accept that? Um, are they going to accept a, or are football club owners in general going to accept a? licensing system or a complete change to the way things are op- operating so there just seems to be that conflict there between an ideal resolution or a, a reasonable re- resolution and the realities of how it, how it will go so then you know then there's a uh, project big picture again that that might come up in one way or another do B teams come back with that do they try and insert a couple of things that are unpalatable but given the complete mess that everything is in become suddenly not so so extreme so big teams uh it's loan partnerships that was mooted years ago these sort of ideas um i'll go to you first uh jay what do you how do you see it playing out now and like what would you what would you hope to happen what i would hope to happen and um i'm not sure if i'm in the minor- in the majority view here i've uh I've I've seen a fair bit of argument to my stance, but my stance would be it was that I, I would I would fully support a government bailout. Yeah. The argument that I've seen against that, which is perfectly fair enough, is that the Premier League has more than enough money to sort that to sort this out themselves. And if the game, you know, is so determined to self-regulate, then that has to be the plan. And I and I accept that it's a perfectly valid argument. My argument in that the, the government should be the ones to provide a bailout is that I, I can't find any other industry that's required financial support where the government has said to the, 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 top, the top or the most profitable businesses that you have to be the ones to sort this out. I, I, I can't find that anywhere else where the, the UK government has said that. The problem with the government saying that the Premier League should be the ones to provide a bailout is that it gives the Premier League power to do things like Project Big Picture. It gives the Premier League power to enforce conditions on what are essentially competitors. Um, okay, d- directly in a, in a in a in a, a league footballing competition sense, maybe not, but they are alternative businesses. You know, they're they're essentially competing for customers, for revenue, for broadcast rights. They are competitors. And no other industry have received such, such conditions imposed on an entire industry. So I would hope that the government would provide a bailout. And then I would hope that the majority of the, um, down the line, I would hope that the majority of the Saving the Beautiful Game document is implemented. So I, I, I support what's in that document. What I think will happen is um, th- there will be some deal between the Premier League and the EFL. And I don't think it's going to be that palatable for supporters. Yeah, sounds plausible. 
Martin, what do you think the roadmap's going to be? Obviously, it's been a very bumpy roadmap this week and things have moved very quickly in terms of ideas being thrown around and dismissed and re-emerging. What do you think will happen from here on in? I'm afraid to say I, I agree with Jay. It's a quite a, I'm one of nature's great pessimists. But I think the at the moment we see this as like a Mexican standoff between the EFL and, and the Premier League and the FA. But I think the other unacknowledged partner in that is the government themselves. And I, I think if you listen to Oliver Dowden earlier, now the government is notionally committed in their manifesto to a fan-led review of governance. But when he was asked about this in the week, he seemed to resile from it a little bit. He seemed to talk about perhaps the need to revisit this if something wasn't done. And it struck me that he, the government almost seemed to be using it like a, like a threat that you might use with a naughty child. It's like, don't make me set up a fan-led review because you wouldn't like what it would find. And it's almost like there's almost like a, an unspoken deal here that if the Premier League will pony up to take that financial burden off the government, which, as Jay says, uh, you know, uh, you know, virtually every business and every person requires a, a bailout these last six months, regardless of how previously they've been running their lives or, or their companies. If the, gov the government seems to be saying, if that, if you take care of that for us, then perhaps we'll let things slide on the review. And so there's, uh, to me, what I see is there's a, while we're all talking about, you know, we dodged this bullet, the EFL and the PAL get together and they thrash out something and then the government says, well, Oh, it looks like you can sort it out between you as well. Maybe we give self-regulation one more go. I, I can't see much other than a, an unpalatable watered-down version of the big picture going through. But that's not what I would like to happen. And I would like to believe that there must be a way that all of the tantalising possibilities on the table, are of a you know, which are represented by the Bernstein Review, by the Sustain the Game from the FSA, that those would be obtainable to us, but only if we can get action from the government if we can actually get them to commit to that review how that happens though i don't know sure it's getting to the crunch, uh, the crunch time now for the government because there's been a lot of good work done by conservatives funnily enough um people like damien collins who've done a lot of good work in this field and it just seems to be the, the point now where they've got to you know put up or shut up in terms of the the, the funded review or um project uh, the um the beautiful game uh, Gary Neville document uh, bringing something together that's going to bring real change to the governments of the game the funny thing is uh, about all this is that although Project Big Picture was completely unpalatable is it acceptable that you know the, the game falls back to its usual pattern and, and, and nothing changes in terms of its governance you know just a bailout let's just get things back to back to normal I don't think that's particularly acceptable either because there'll just be a further crisis down the line maybe not corona induced God forbid but a further crisis down the line. So this just seems to be the time where something has to happen for all these years and decades of wasted chances, wasted good ideas, the government uh, and the people that are supposed to care about the game, so-called you know, guardians of the game, uh, the people that are behind the scenes uh, thinking they're you know, big enough minds to uh, you know, machinate and do you know, backroom deals on, on the future to go. They need they need to come up with something now that actually is sustainable the future. Like it has to be a, a as I said, sustained game. And it's probably a good place to wrap up now because um in terms of the talking about the future of the game, it, the future is now really the future is the next next coming weeks. Um thanks for taking the time to talk to me guys and we'll probably have another catch up in probably about two weeks time where everything's turned on its head again. But um I do appreciate it and um, you too take care.
Yeah, thanks, pleasure. Cheers, guys. Speak to you later. Bye-bye. Right then, let's go on to the serious matter of Plymouth Argyle v Cobblers on Saturday. Pleased to be joined by Nick from Argyle Life, Plymouth Hello. Argyle website. How are you doing, Nick? You all right? Yeah, not bad, thanks you. Yeah, not too bad. Still getting through the grind of all this this COVID-19 business. and uh, But I suppose football gives us something to look forward yeah. to at the weekend. But when you have guests on here, does anyone say anything other than, yeah, I'm fine, thanks? Because I just, I've done a few of these and it's always like, yeah, fine, thanks. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks too. <laughs> Yeah, no, no one's saying, you know, that they're in the depths of despair. Although I might say that to you this week because our, our performance last week was was not good in the derby. So I might be like uh, pouring my heart out to you. <laughs> but that sort of, that, that leads us on actually to your start to the season because I was looking at it a little bit and it's, I would call it fairly solid. You beat Blackpool, who I, I rate fairly highly in this league. Um, you lost against Hull, who we did as well, who are obviously a good side. And but you beat Burton Albion, who are always are there or thereabouts, good solid side. So you're in eighth place. How would you sum up your start to the season? Depends who you ask, really. I suppose the key, the key thing to remember is we, like you, are newly promoted. And yeah. while a lot of people, a lot of Green Army, look around the squad and say that there's enough skill in there to go for promotion and look at a playoff place. Yeah. That I think everyone is accepting that. If we finish top half, we're going to be happy. There aren't going to be complaints. I mean, to think about it, in the last decade, um, Argyle only finished in the top half of League One once. Everything else was leaked. It was below that. So it was relegation from League One or League Two. So we're just almost relishing the idea of becoming a stable League One club again first. And then, you know, you can go and do your um, new more Portsmouth style of, you know, progressing and looking at being a, a perennial uh, campaign to try and get into the championship. The games, um, Hull, Hull completely outplay us for about 60 minutes, then we make a positive change and then really took the game to them and we probably deserved a goal. One that we deserved a draw is a different matter. Side note, George Honeyman, absolutely class player. He was fantastic in that game. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I, class above. But then uh, we played Burton last week. It was almost like it was almost like a walk in the park because we barely got out of second gear and won quite comfortably. Yeah. Um, and Burton were a lot more defensive than I think they've been in previous games. Went to five at the back rather than four. So, to be honest, it, it's been a start to the season where we could quite feasibly have not lost a hole, beaten Shrewsbury, and then we came back. We, we missed a good chance to win it in the last minute as well against Wimbledon, having been 4-2 down. So, you know, it's been topsy-turvy start to the season where we started really well and all of a sudden everyone's doom and gloom. We haven't got a good enough defence. Make one change in defence and all of a sudden... Everyone's happy again. Yeah, that's true. So, what do you make of your your manager then, Ryan Lowe, who's an ex, you know, pro himself, round the block a bit? So, I, I well, I, well, I'm going to say I really like the management setup because I've had someone suggest to me that Stephen Schumacher is actually the brains behind the operation, and I've got nowhere validating that, but I thought just to cover myself. But um, no, I, I like the management. Um, to be honest, I cut them quite a bit of slack in terms of in terms of not outwardly, you know, publicly criticising because. I think they're doing a pretty good job. I accept that there's only so much that they can do and that it's not their fault necessarily if the team absolutely bowls it and throws away a two-goal lead against Leighton Orient and that hopefully it doesn't happen too much in the future. And everyone complained about the fact we're shipping goals and then we've gone and you know kept a clean sheet against Burton and pretty deserved clean sheet. We looked solid against Shrewsbury and then, yeah, Hull only managed to get one against us. So, Does your manager have a go-to formation that he sticks to? We will always be three five two. I don't. I, I genuinely don't think we played a minute outside of a three five two, and um, yeah. for the vast, vast, vast majority of that, actually no, that's not true. We played three four three a bit, only a little bit though. 
but yeah. for the vast, vast, vast majority, it's with a sitting midfielder and two ahead. But there have been occasions this season, like against QPR, we played two defensive midfielders and an attacking midfielder to hit on the counter. Yeah. But the sort of the notable thing is, I suppose you've done it a bit to an extent with um, with Nicky Adams, but we almost exclusively have wingers playing there. So we've got Byron Moore, who's a right winger, he's a striker who played for, he's a striker when he played for um, Bristol Rovers, as I remember. Um, yeah. You know, he's played up front for us as well. He's one of the sort of versatile forwards who can be striker or just you know wide. He plays right wing back for the most part. Then George Cooper, who I assume you probably know being around League 2 for a while and League 1 for a while. He's a relatively well-known low league player. Um, also a winger. He's playing left wing back. And we do have defensive options there, but they're you know, their first choice. We're going to have wingers at wing back. We've got Danny Mayer as an attacking mid and centre mid. We've got Connor Grant, who's Oh, to be fair, we have Ben Reeves as an option to play in the centre mid as well. He's also an attacking mid. He was the um, he was the uh, con- arch- what's the word? The architect of when MK Dons beat United 4-0. If you go watch those highlights, he got three of the assists. Um, he probably won't start because he uh, came into the season injured, hasn't won his place yet. But Connor Grant is good going forward. The guy's got two goals, three assists already this season. So it's quite an aggressive starting you know starting eleven: two strikers, two wingers, an attacking mid, maybe another one, and only three defenders on the pitch. It seems like a, a fairly intriguing tussle because we play three-five-two. We're very, we're very direct. I've I've looked at our passing stats and they're not good. Lowest pass percentage ratio uh, success in the whole four divisions. So it just showed you last week against Peterborough our direct game wasn't working because we had Harry Smith who's very tall and he was just very isolated, trying to look for him all the time. So we're going to be looking to try and just keep the ball a little bit more and play a little bit more football and try and be in the game a bit more. Um, who would you you say your players watch out for? Are the one story look for is, well, this is going to be a first time thing I'm ever going to say this, but you've initially got to say one to watch is going to be Connor Grant, who's been almost a perennial underperformer in terms of what what you really want him to give and then versus what actually delivers. But this season, he's sort of just emerged. Guy's already got two goals, including one absolute screamer versus Wimbledon. Um, he had one chopped off against Blackpool for a contentious offside. Uh, he wasn't offside, he was scoring the rebound. Um, and then provided three assists, including the open goal against Burton. Um, he left-footed. What he's really added is a little shimmy and a dummy, a sort of Danny Mare-style shimmy and dummy that you'll see from him a lot. He's the number yeah. 10 for Argyle. Um, so, you know, he'll drop his shoulder a bit more now and, you know, ease past the player, whereas he wouldn't do that, you know, last season and the season before. What we'll have is, you know, the wing-backs will push forward a lot and when they and the sentiments push forward a lot, and when they get into an attacking position, just sort of waiting for a moment of magic to make that hole. And Conor Grant's added that little moment of magic with his little shimmy, and he can cut inside on his left foot and bend it for the far corner. Danny Mayer, sort of person the game runs through more often than not. He's most often the midfielder, if not the player, with the most passes completed. He's going to be the one who distorts your defensive shape more than anything. He's going to sort of play almost like a left winger at times, even though we've got another winger further ahead, and he'll sort of he'll run an angle from the corner of the box sort of headed towards the goal into the box that drags the defender inside and then can lay it into the wing back or he'll square it for Conor Grant maybe. But his his movement, his vision is really good. Um, it's just a real shame that the guy can't seem to get consistent goals or assists. It's really frustrating. Um, but, but more than anything, he'll likely be at the heart of most of our attacking moves. He might not be the one who actually puts the finishing touch on it though or the assist. Um, and then Luke Jeffcott is probably going to start as striker. You reckon Frank Nublay, who's the number seven, is probably going to be more of the battering ram. We don't play long balls into him like a target man, 
but will sort of play them into his chest and will allow him to and into his feet and allow him to hold up his man and then lay it into the runner. But Luke Jeffcott's the one who's going to be touch and shoot, touch and shoot. Imagine early days Harry Kane. Obviously, that's a ridiculous um, comparison, but in terms of I'm not sure if you remember, he scored a bunch of goals that weren't really that good. But when you factor in that he hit it so early and the keeper never had time to set himself, that's one of the things that Jeffcott's added to his game. Yep. He's got two starts, two goals. Um, so I wouldn't be too surprised at all if he adds another goal. Um, it just seems to me that you've got a fair number of people that are going to test the goal. You've got Conor Grant, who I believe is a midfielder. Is that right? He used to play for Everton, I think. Um, so, he, you know, he's got he's obviously got a shot on him, two goals, three assists. That's that's pretty impressive so far. You've got Jeff Cott, who scored two goals as well. Uh, Nuble, he's well-known, isn't he? he? His attributes are well-known. It's interesting to see that you don't just look for his head like we do with Harry Smith, that you look for a bit more of a subtle sort of, um, maybe the subtle's not the word, but an, an alternative way of holding the play up. So I just think that you've got a fair few goal-scoring threats there. And when I, when I look at our team, I'm thinking, hmm, that is something that, with two shots and goal in our last game, on target, sorry, that's just something that I slightly worry about. Um. What would you say your hopes for the season then are? Because we've talked about it a little bit. Eighth place, you're there or thereabouts. You're knocking on the door, but you're not, you know, in the positions where you want to really want to be for promotion. What would where would what would you say would be a a good end to the season for you? The thing I probably should have mentioned in in summing up the season, we've had an absolute hatful of chances against. We played a league cut, uh, EFL trophy game against Cheltenham. We missed three one on ones and two other good chances. Um, and then they score a couple of half chances. And that's very much been the story of the season for the most part. The reason Jeff Cott's got his place over Dom Telford and Ryan Hardy is that those two are spurning chances left, right and centre. Like, we missed two one-on-ones to make it 4-0 against Leighton Orient as well, for example. So, I mean, if, if we can get a striker who's just going to hit the back net consistently and finish off all the chances we, we've been creating thus far, then there's no reason why we couldn't all of a sudden emerge as that outside candidate for automatic promotion. But in all likelihood, it's you know, it, it's likely to not be us. Um, so, like I say, I'm going to take anything top half, but I'm keep my eye well on the playoffs. It's definitely doable. Yeah, and let's face it, you're 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 new to the division, like we are. You know, the, anything above, you know, mid table, I reckon for you guys, anything above that would be fairly okay. And anything else is a bit of a bonus, especially with all this coronavirus problems going on. Um, yeah. have you have you you said that you've looked at Northampton a little bit. Like, what? How would you? Without me preempting too much, how would you like describe Arthur and what what you think about Northampton? Um, so first thing is, I remember when we went to Northampton last season, and Northampton could have been four, five, one up by half time. Um, that was the first proper. That's the first time any team had come at us because it was quite the dramatic change. We've gone from Derek Adams, who's more of a long ball, you know, your classic low league manager who will play. You know, it's not like passing, it's not necessarily all long ball, but it's quite direct. It's, you know, sit back, hold the ball sort of thing. And we'd, we'd taken a lot of these players over from Derek Adams to Ryan Lowe. And we, we'd start the season well and we passed around well. I think we we're all quite surprised at what these players could actually do when it's probably, you know, passing drill is probably coaching them as part of the ethos. And we go to Northampton and, you know, we tried to pass up and back every time. Um, and you just lined up with man for man all along. Like, right, we're going to go one for one. If you can pass it out, great. We're in trouble. If not, we're quids in. And that's basically how it played out. And, you know, you countered, you stopped us at source, and we got nowhere. Um, I know that's not necessarily uh, how you play directly with the ball at your feet, but I'm, I'm really intrigued to see if that happens again. And if Argyle have learnt and found a way to get past it, 
our team is undoubtedly weaker than last season. You you might say yours is slightly you know, equal or even a little bit better. Ours is definitely we definitely worse. We lost uh, Callum Morton, we yeah. lost Alan McCormack, we lost Charlie Good. Yes, yeah, pretty much yeah. a whole spine throughout the whole team, which really made us into that strong counter-attacking unit. Really, just quite um, awesome on in the way we played. You know, it's not particularly my cup of tea, but it's just uh, quite devastating, especially when we played likes of you guys at points and stuff. But this season, it's just really not the same team. A whole new back three, really not clicking that well. So um, that probably leads us on actually to a, a match prediction. Actually, what would you what would you go for? Match scoreline. I, I almost want to predict Northampton to win because my my ah, okay. But it's because my predictions are awful, and when I predict a win, we lose. When I predict the loss, we win. So <laughs> it's, it's almost it's, it's, it's that simple reverse psychology, you know, whereby if I bet against my team, I win. Um, yeah. Uh, let's let's. Do, you know, I'm going to say let's say two nil Argyle because we. Yeah, we've been good with with Jeff got back in. I'm a bit more confident we're going to put chances away. The team's gelling more and more. And I suppose more importantly, we've got options off the bench. Like Ben Reeves came off the bench against Hull for his debut, having barely having not played a minute until then, he was injured. Guy looked fantastic. He's now sort of sat on the bench. We've we've got options left, right, and centre. We've got, for example, if if you're all, if you're all over us and we can't get the ball, we'll probably bring on Kamara, our number twenty-eight guy. You you might remember from Crawley last season. The guy runs so much; it's ridiculous. He's yeah. fantastic at sort of you know pressing, getting the ball back. Um, play pressing out the pitch, and you know we've got different options. We've probably got um, Telford off the bench might come off and score a goal like he did against Wimbledon. I think the options is the key thing for me. But honestly, I I don't know. It's hard to know without seeing more of one Northampton like this season. Obviously, there's always the danger you click because you didn't start last season fantastically. Then you beat us and went on a little bit of a run, as I remember. Exactly. So we beat Southampton. Um, we need a reaction after the the disappointing. Performance versus posh in the local derby last week, so we we could potentially come out all guns blazing. It might kick into place, but like I, I said before, the what Keith Curls Curl calls his fundamentals. He talks talk about talk about that every week, and when you look at the passing stats, the shooting stats, the fundamentals aren't there at the moment. So I can only be slightly pessimistic. I'm going to go for two one to you guys through gritted teeth, but um, you know it's you know as long as we play a little bit better, we keep the ball slightly better, more shots on goal and we bring the game to you and try and affect a win You know that will be an improvement but yeah, I'm not particularly confident but, you know, that's I, what... say, I think that pressing I think the pressing us you know, from kick-off and not yeah. goal kicks and so forth, I'll be interested to see A, if you try it again, B, if it's as successful as last time, because last time it, it just, it's something we just can handle it for the first half, first 45 minutes keep it outside that's good. well. Thanks for joining me, and we can treat that afterwards after the the uh, result. But can you just um, tell our listeners what your your website is if they want to read about uh, Plymouth? And sure. So the website's so Argyle Argyle Life. That's our, so you just type into your you know your browser Argyle.life or search Argyle Life, and you'll find yeah. it. it's a Plymouth Argyle fan site. Run our own podcast. Um, we've got you know news, opinion, analysis, all out. All like it's it's your standard uh, uh, fan site basically. But we try to put as much effort into as possible and sort of making you know original content. It's a bit more um, yeah. Well, it's hard to describe really, but you know it's it's just a bit more than just your local press reporting. Yeah, I I always like a bit of uh, fan-led media and stuff. It just adds yeah, exactly. a different angle and often an authentic voice. I find. But thanks for taking the time to talk to me, and uh, we'll speak again soon. Cool. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, buddy. All right. Let's move on to our regular super sub feature, which is really quite fun. We look at programs from days gone by, usually with a, a date 
or a, a relative date to you know, when we go up to broadcast. So uh, a guy called um, Cobbers Programs programs on Twitter, I recommend having a look at his profile. He's tweeted recently a program from 15th October 1994, which was really important for a lot of reasons. It was a first game at Sixfields when Sixfields first opened uh, versus Barnet. Result was 1-1 with the late Martin Aldridge. Um, scoring the first ever six years goal. The attendance was 7-4-6-1. That was probably a sellout of that day, as far as I remember. Let's read out the Cobblers uh, team. It wasn't really a squad in those days, was it? It was their team and a few subs. So, Billy Stewart in goal. David Norton. Norton, 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 Norton. Norton. Hey. Lee Colkid. Lee <laughs> <laughs> Colkid. Another uh, favourite of the pod. Ian Sampson, Warburton, the uh, solid centre-back pairing. Robbie Curtis. Uh, I can't really remember mm. much about him. Cobblers. Darren Harmon, we spoke to him about him a lot. Phil Robertson, definitely a Cotton Cobblers, uh, Cobbler, who we talked about. Dean Trot, say no more. <laughs> you know, trot, Trot, Trot. Martin Aldridge, bless him. Uh, Mickey Bell, Jason Pascoe, rings a bell slightly. Gareth Williams and Mark Ovendale was a goalie. And I'll quickly go through the Barnet team. A couple of them ring a bell through like football journeyman circuit. So Gary Phillips in goal, David McDonald, Robert Mutchell, Carl Hoddle, which Andy might tell us, I think is Glenn Hoddle's brother. Yeah. Um, Mark Newsom, Linvoy Primus, he rings a bell. I think he might have played for Portsmouth, don't quote me on that, but yes. he was, he yes, was around yeah. a lot. Yeah, great shout. Michael Tomlinson, Dougie Friedman, who is a standout player of all of them, I think. Lee Hodges, Peter Scott, Paul Wilson, Mark Cooper, who, is that right, Jeffy, you were the one that went to Cobblers? He did, yeah, yeah, I've got a Mark Cooper story for, if you want it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Why not say it now? <laughs> okay, go. Oh, we um, after they beat um, Cardiff in the second leg of that '97 uh, playoff, uh, when they when they won the Swansea final, the second leg of the Cardiff semi-final, Mark Cooper had been sent off in the first leg, and so was suspended for. I think he was suspended for that game and the final. He was definitely suspended for the playoff final, um, as far as I can recall. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm doubting myself now, but basically we saw the squad out on that night after the Cardiff game out on the on the smash in town. Mark Cooper was absolutely hammered by the um, taxi rank uh, on Mercer Row, you know, in town. <laughs> and he had his shirt completely undone and it was soaked with sweat and he was smoking. And I said, I, I saw him and I said to him, I can't, I can't believe you. I can't believe you're smoking. And he looked at me like these like sad puppy dog eyes and said, I've got nothing to play for now, have I? And I was, I was like, oh, that is so depressing. That's so sad. I think, yeah, because wasn't he released at the end of that yeah, season? He when his contract yeah. ended. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. That's what the move doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very sad. How to take all the magic out of our first Wembley final. Uh, yeah, so that's a... Yeah, it's a, a disturbing and upsetting story in all in one. So, uh, thanks, cheers, Jeff. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to um, we're going to swap in three players from the current Cobblers team from three players from this vintage. So I've been through the team. Quickly go through it again: Stuart Norton, Colkin, Sabson, Warburton, Curtis, Harmon, Robinson, Trot, 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 Aldridge, Bell, Pascoe, Williams, and Ovendale. It's not really, you know, the best Cobblers team that's ever been, but there's a little bit of talent in there. And uh, let's go with you, Martin. What three players would you swap into the current Cobblers team from that, that roster? It was um, slim pickings, I think yeah. I, um, I said in, in the Facebook <laughs> chat earlier. 
And there's probably some definite recency bias in terms of areas, one area in particular, I think we need help. So honourable mentions, I think, for Harmon, Colkin, Trot, all had their their charms. But for me, Mickey Bell, cracking Mm. player, him and Steve Brown, about the only um, bright spots, some of those sort of um, dog days at the county ground. Um, So, yeah, definitely Mickey Bell. And frankly, two that I would, you know, would be probably starting, probably almost certainly starting on Saturday. Um, and I've picked them before, both in, or individually, uh, Razor and Samo. You know, because boy, oh boy, it looks shaky back there. Yeah. It, it, it certainly does. And they're always going to inject a bit of solidity into a, into a back four, back three or whatever. So they're a good choice. I just noticed as well, Ray Clements was a manager of Barnet. It must be yeah. Ray Clements. So some some hefty names sort of dotted around that Barnet outfit. Um, Andy, what about you? You're obviously gallivanting around Liverpool. Well, <laughs> living your life. In just retrospect, just I mean, obviously... Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I know the names through osmosis and mates. Yeah. And even, you know, the... Um, you know, uh, this chat over the last few months, a few of those names have popped up before. Um, I mean, I, if you want to, if you want to put a bandit player well, in there, well, feel free. Mr. Carl Hoddle. Um, yes. But no, no, no. It's a, but um, I mean, obviously, I've, I think I mentioned uh, Ray Warburton a few weeks ago um, on another sort of uh, cobbler's program. Yes. Um, echo what Martin said there. Likewise, Mickey Bell. Remember him from the, um, you know, the, the tail end of the county ground days. And, um, I mean, he, he had a bit of spark, didn't he? He was a winger and, you know, provided a little bit of, little bit of fun. Um, and, um, I mean, Martin Aldridge, I, I remember, obviously, you know, talked about him scoring that, um, scoring that first ever goal at Sixfields. But he was at Diamonds, wasn't he? And he wasn't there for very long before yeah. uh, tragedy struck. Um, and I just I just remember that being a story when I worked there um, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so uh, I mean, others are the experts there. Um, Jeff went, um, which is great. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not really an expert on that era. I can just just echo really what Martin said about um, <laughs> where, where we need strengthening, um, i.e. all areas of the pitch. <laughs> I think um, Mickey Bell. You- Nicky Bell was actually a, a fairly high-quality player. He had a very good career with Bristol City. Jeff will fill us in on this. Bristol City and Wickham, I think. So he had a bit of uh, pedigree about him, or he went on to have a bit of pedigree. Martin Aldridge, I thought, was a talented player, and he was quite exciting to watch at the county ground back in those days. Um, Jeff, what was your freebie? Um, I, I'm not going to stray too far from what the other guys have said. What is this is kind of the so John Barnwell is still the manager at this point, and some of these players are the players he signed in the previous summer when a friend of mine got enormously I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before got enormously excited about the fact we were bringing these players in from non league because that was what Graham Carr had done and enjoyed enormous success. Uh, sadly, Robbie Curtis, Jason Pascoe. Uh, Al, were no Richard Hill and uh, Trevor Morley. <laughs> so yeah, uh, isn't it funny though how every, every almost every year, every unsuccessful year, someone will someone will think they're the cleverest person. Will say, oh, we should go, we should draw the not, we should get into the non-league because <laughs> yeah. look what happened in eighty six, eighty seven. It's almost like someone back, you know, well through probably eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. 
someone with really good knowledge of some underrated players. And now everyone tries the same thing again. And blow me, those non-league players, most of them aren't very good. There's a reason they're <laughs> non-league players. Yeah. Indeed. I um, oh, And this as well, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? The, tw- the fact that it's 26 years ago. I quite like these things like, you know, the thing of... Um, Cleopatra lived closer to the first moon landing than she oh, did in yeah. the pyramids. So for this one, this match is now closer to um, the Beatles breaking up than it is to today. That's, oh, no. That's, 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 that's revolting. <laughs> I'm really cheering everyone up tonight, aren't I? Uh, please hit the like and subscribe button here after this podcast. I always thought Aldridge was a brilliant player. I thought he was, um, and, you know, they never really tapped into his potential. From what I can remember, he had a pretty hefty falling out with Ian Atkins um, and was told he would never play for the club again and things like that, which is an enormous shame, obviously, because he is sadly no longer with us. The substitute goalkeeper, Mark Ovendale, in this team as well, is also no longer with us. He died of cancer uh, in 2011. So quite a, quite another another sad story there. Um, on to happier times. I would select David Norton from this team just so that we can sing that song again. Yes. Um, and you you have to pick Ian Sampson and Ray Warburton from this team because even at this stage, you know, you you could probably see that they were two real class players. I, I remember thinking because um, they both came on loan initially, didn't they? And I remember thinking, blimey. Imagine if we could actually have these players like permanently, and then we did. And then they were obviously the the backbone of the, the Ian Atkins teams, which were more successful later in the uh, in the decade. So yeah, they would be my picks: uh, David Norton and Samo and Razor. Yeah, there's a little bit of quality in that squad, and I think you've picked out the, the three there. I would probably go. I'd go for Mickey Bell because. When we were back at the, the county ground, and a few of our listeners will be younger and won't even have experienced it, you, you didn't miss much in terms of the quality of play. But there were certain players that just injected a little bit of a little bit of quality, a little bit of skill. And he was a, quite an old-fashioned winger who would just give you that little bit of enjoyment when you went to the county ground v Chesterfield or God knows whoever on a dark day, uh, Bromsgrove mm-hmm. Rovers. <laughs> Like that, we used to play against and lose regularly. <laughs> so he's one that we'll have the Bombsgrove Rover story. It's because that's one of Jeff's worst ever games. I think we'll talk about that another game. But uh, Mickey Bell, so he'll be in there. I'm going to go for actually one. I'm going to go for two from Barnet actually, just for the fun of it. I'm going to go for Dougie Friedman, who I've talked about before in this game, who <laughs> was just he was a standout player and he scored that game and went on to a fantastic career. Crystal Palace, where he really made his name, but you know management and stuff and just well, a player you don't really expect to go through at Barnet, so he he was really one to stand out. And then we got to say Carl Hoddle because I just think it'd just be really interesting to be a fly on the wall when you're in the dressing room with Carl Hoddle, and he's just not as good as his brother, and he's just there, and he's just like, does he just take it on the chin? <laughs> does he take it on the chin and just like blazing it out, or has he just got a, a Mark Cooper hangdog look on his face all the time? But yeah, but very much, very much shades of Dean Wilkins there as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who played against, played against um, us, yeah. Cobblers for Brighton? Yeah, yeah. in that to- Tony Miola match. Yeah, so Carl Hoddle, bless him. He was never going to chip uh, Steve Sherwood like his brother Glenn did. <laughs> no, no. Did you see that video on Twitter where um, Glenn Hoddle is? I, I 
can't remember the exact player, but it's for Swindon, and he's given him, he's given his striker, he's a manager of Swindon, yeah, he's I given his striker that. his tips about yeah. how to score. And um, can you talk us through it, Jeff? It's really funny. Well, I I saw it, yeah. So he's he is show, trying to get. It's like a a goal uh, a goal scoring like a striker drill, isn't it? Yep. And then uh, he demonstrates how to do do it, and he's just amazing at it. Is that the yeah. one? He leathers yeah, it. Yeah. Corner with no effort whatsoever. Yeah. He, that's how that's how you do it. In this video, he's so funny because he's just like he's literally show. He just can't he can't help but show off, and nor nor should he because he was mm. so good. But he whipped it in the top corner, and then he cut across the ball beautifully with like brilliant technique, and then he cuts to the Swindon player, and he's just like, oh god. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. going, oh, you just spooed it over for five yards, but you you get it next time. Yeah. No, can't do that. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so poor old Carl Hoddle. Um, but at least he got a pro career, you know. I don't know how good he was, but he he lined up against the mighty Cobblers at Sixfield, so better than most of us have done. Let's move on to the Cobblers A to Z. We're slowly getting through it. We're not at Wayne Williams yet. WW, we're still on E. <laughs> uh, letter E, but we're getting through it. Um, so let's read out a couple of the ones that people have tweeted in. We've got quite a few regular tweeters now. Um, Nathan Silk, if that's your name, mate, you've been blessed in life. Uh, Nathan <laughs> Silk, he should be in our jazz quartet. Nathan Silk, um, he's treated <laughs> us, uh, E for Araya, so the future classic pink Araya kit that Andy doesn't like, but we'll move on from that one. I think it's a bit of a classic. E stand is going to feature really heavily. The texture of it's lovely. <laughs> oh, what, Silk? <laughs> Nathan Silk. Um, so the East Stand is going to feature, feature very heavily because it's just um, it's just literally illuminated football club still all these years later. That's come from Quick Whittington. We're getting some brilliant little names. Quick Whittington. Um, Grumpy Greyhead has gone for Emil Sinclair. I think we mentioned last week, possibly. Now, uh, lastly, implying he's trade, trade for Liversedge in the Northern Counties East League. So that's a name to, to conjure with. Um, Aiden, NTFC Aiden's gone for Exeter City, Neil Cobblers 4, which plays into Jeff's sort of ghost promotion, whether it was deserved or not. I guess it was because we uh, managed to smash Exeter. Um, Matt Rice agrees with Andy. He's gone for Eddie, 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 my favourite cobbler, Eddie McGoldrick. Just, yeah, very good player. Ian Wickens at Chunk Design has gone for uh, some low knees, actually. Ian Everett, um, Jeff could probably feel something about these. Ian Everett. Emir Hughes, who I think came from Man City. I'm not sure where he is now. And yeah. Stevens, who's in the Premier League now, isn't he? Does he play for Sheffield United? Is that right? Yep. Yep. Uh, played Sheffield United, regular Republic of Ireland. He's turned well, out to be really good. So, Emir Hughes, do you remember him, Martin? I think he played for um, for Man City, came on loan. I think he's a Welsh guy. Yes. Yeah, we had him on loan from, from City. Was was OK. Um, ended up, I think, at Ipswich. And um, I, I used to work with a tractor boy and... He thought he was pretty good. He was bang average for us. I think he played played midfield alongside um, some. I was going to next big thing in, in um, Lewis Hornby. Yeah, so he was um, one of those sort of players that you bring that comes in from someone like Man City. You're not 100 percent sure how it's going to work out. Um, Ian Townsend's gone for Ian Jess, who is an important part of that promotion under uh, Colin Calderwoods. Came from mm. played for Forest for a long time. I think he was Scottish. He was yes, yes, ex Aberdeen legend. Pretty useful player. Uh, Keith B has gone for F on E, lad. Son of God. 
let's say no more. It's a double E as well, so he gets double points for that. Just an absolute brilliant player who Martin still doesn't rate that much, but I still think it was absolutely just the best thing since sliced bread. Um, Mark Josiah has gone for Danny East and Danny Emerton. Now, Danny Emerton, was he from Hull? Mine, you probably know this. Yes, this yeah, okay. something, or did he come to us properly? Just wasn't that good, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I think I think he came in from Hull and ended up at North Ferriby um, via us, yeah. um, which is just outside Hull. But he did he scored a beauty. Um, I remember a cup game at Bishop Stortford. But yeah, he looked like he, he you know a winger with a bit of effort, a bit of pace, but not really much more. Um, but you know sometimes you miss on a player like Emir Hughes didn't look much and then ended up playing, I think Championship for quite a while. Um, but yeah, Everton was yeah one of many. I mean, if we think about positions where we forget players, fullbacks and wingers, I think are always the um, the forgotten ones. That's true. That's that's a good point. Um, Deborah Marshall, say no more, has gone for the Exeter Rooms, the site of the public meeting and the birth of the trust. Great shout! Great yeah. shout! Yeah. It's a very good one. Like and the Exeter Rooms is it's still there actually. It's down the Kettering Road, but it's not open. I think it's locked up and everything. But you can still see that little room where you know the whole supporters trust movement was born in it's crazy it's crazy to think um did you go to that meeting martin or uh, yep yep i was there it was packed wasn't it wasn't there yes. like two yeah, yeah it, was sta- it was standing room only at the back um and yeah say started the movement that sort of saved our club on more than one occasion but more importantly i think it it started something that um you know especially thanks to the work of brian lomax Spread, spread through the world, you know, through the football world. Yeah, that's true, and uh, probably the most, the answer with the most gravitas out of all of them. So thanks for that, Debs, and obviously Debs was a, a major driving force in that. Um, we'll have to call it a night now because we've been talking for quite a while. Jeff's off to play Championship Manager ninety-seven, ninety-eight until his fingers break. <laughs> thanks for talking, guys, and we'll see, speak next week after the Plymouth game. Take it easy. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Cheers mate. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.